0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 26, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is away today. Joining me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noel Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, one of our favorite guests, uh, AAI Senior Fellow, Editor of National Affairs, Yuval Levin. Hi, Yuval. How are you? Hello, John. Good. How are you? Good, I mean, I'm good. The question is uh, what is the state and condition of the country that we live in and love? And um, we this is obviously uh, a question on everybody's mind because of the central dilemma facing us in the wake of these three mass shootings in the last two weeks, Buffalo, um, the uh, the Korean Church, Uh, um, the, excuse me, the Taiwanese church uh, and, um, and obviously Uvalde, Texas, which is what, what do these say anything about the United States as a collective, as a society? What, in what way are we, the four of us here, everybody listening, people who have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with any of these, Acts in terms of committing them, planning them, knowing about them, anything like that. What, in what way are we implicated in them as members of this society, as citizens of the United States? And uh, how are we therefore to judge American society through the lens of these events? Because there are two ways of looking at it, one of which is no civilized society can allow these things to happen. And if they're happening, they are an indictment of the society as a whole. And the other is that there are 330 million people in the United States and that every year 20 of them commit, it it now seems around 20 of them commit uh, crimes of violence, uh, horrifying crimes of violence against people that they generally usually don't know Uh, in an effort to get attention for their ideas for themselves as an expression of nihilistic rage as an expression of evil and 20 if 20 is the numerator and 330 million is the denominator how can American society be blamed for the actions of these few uh Yuval you are our PhD on this panel you have uh written extensively on the insults have begun well no i phd is good the fact that you're not you know you're not a professor on campus also good (laughs) um but you know this is something that you know your your academic work uh as a um you know as a as a as a burkean or a panian or an anti-panian or whatever uh is very much about this question of what it means to be a citizen of a free society Uh, and from this perspective now, two days into this, uh, moment where, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's an important question to be asking at a time like this, because an event of this sort naturally focuses you on the question of what in the world is happening to our society. I I think there are a few things to keep in mind. One is that these kinds of, of horrible mass shootings do tend to come in bunches, um, People who have who have had evil thoughts about this sort of thing, see someone else having done it, getting a lot of attention for it and decide that it's their time. So that if you look at these over the past 20 years and we've had far too many of them over the past 20 years, um, they do come in groups of them. And so they, they create these moments where we think what's going on here. Well, this is happening everywhere. Um, But obviously, as you say, in the scale of our society overall, um, these are not happening every day. I think that there is a way in which they force us to ask about the kinds of circumstances that create the mentality that seems to be held in common by a lot of these shooters, a sense of, of, of desperate isolation and loneliness, particularly in the case of young men. Um, And that's much more widespread than is the decision to act on that by shooting innocent people. Um, That sense of isolation and loneliness is a fact of contemporary America that we do have to think about and that we do have to worry about. It affects men and women in different ways, but you see a kind of brokenness among older teenagers um, in both cases that I think is a national problem. I don't think that national problem presents itself as Americans going around shooting each other all the time. That's that's just not a fact about our society. When you look at the scale of American life, we certainly have much more of a gun culture than just about any other place, maybe except Canada. And it's part of who we are. And, um, you know, that does mean certainly that there's much more gun violence in the United States than in most developed democracies. But the notion that A, that's a new problem, or B, that's uh, become much worse and is the way to understand our society is not quite right. I think if we want to think about how this can happen uh, in a constructive way, then we should think about what has led to the breakdown of the sense people have that they belong to something, that they are not isolated and alienated. Those are constructive questions to ask. But the notion that we're all as a society guilty for this because we haven't taken whatever legislative step um, is is now said to be the necessary measure is is just not right. I mean, that's a that's a loss of perspective that is not the right way to learn lessons, it seems to me.
2: There's something that I was focused on in the last twenty four hours or so, which I can only describe as a, a very fatuous attempt to collectivize the experience shared by the victims of these shootings in order to inject ourselves into their stories and their circumstances. Um, Historian David Blight is a Civil War historian, author of a biography on Frederick Douglass, said today, with very different circumstances, it may indeed be the mid or late 1850s again, echoing a sentiment that was reflected in a Los Angeles Times op-ed that I found very unconvincing, which cited uh, Abraham Lincoln's address to the Young Men's Lyceum, uh, Springfield, Illinois, saying um, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. And they ponder that this may be the suicide of which Lincoln spoke, that we are just going to descend into an orgy of mass violence toward no particular aim. Um, This is a a willful misreading of that sentiment uh, that was expressed in that speech, because Lincoln was very specific about what he was talking about. It was uh, abject lawlessness and mob violence, uh, displays of mob action designed to destabilize in the name, uh, you know, the local and, and federal government in the name of disunion. Um, and there's reason for us to be to celebrate, really, um, because we were just witness, privy to one of those events where a, a, an ambitious man can take advantage of that kind of lawlessness, and exactly what Lincoln said would need would be needed to stand up to it, materialized um, fortuitously. So. The notion here that we are on the brink of some sort of a, a, a collective breakdown because of one or many or the cumulative effect of individual acts of discrete individual acts of criminality seems to me just a psychological effort to inject and insert ourselves into these stories.
3: It's actually it, it's not only uh, wrong in terms of analogies, but it's in some ways perfectly opposite um, because the threat from the mob is one thing we're talking about a threat of isolation, which is, which is sort of disconnectedness entirely. Isolation um, and indolence. Well, yeah, uh, as lack of purpose
0: would suggest. Well, <laughs> so there is a danger here though in Letting us off too easily. I mean that. That, in other words, I I think philosophically, what everybody is saying here and what I myself said yesterday on the podcast is true. You know, you can't you can't assign collective blame to to individual acts of evil. To do so, by the way, drains the evil from the individual act. Suggests that somehow the the person who is committing that act is channeling some quality in the society that is puppeting him or her uh and 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 controlling him or her unconsciously and therefore that person is not to be deemed responsible for their actions because they are merely representatives of a larger badness uh that is acting through them and i think that's morally depraved. I mean, if we don't assign moral responsibility to the people who actually do the things that other people don't do, even if they have the inclination to do so. And and now I wanna just bring in a concept from from the Jewish faith. Uh, Concept is yetzer hara, it means the evil inclination. And uh, it is an axiom of Jewish faith that everybody is born with the yetzer hara. In fact, there is an idea, uh, Talmudic idea very powerfully expressed that we're born with the yetzer hara, we are not born with the yetzer hatov, which is the inclination to do good. The yetzer hatov is learned. The yetzer hatov is part of what means what happens when you come to your maturity, when you become a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah a son or a daughter of the of the commandments. We are all, we have evil within us. And the question is, do we express it or do we not? Do we do we act on it or do we not? And when you say that the problem is American loneliness or the problem is isolation or disconnection, the problem is uh, guns and this guy who was a slave to his guns or whatever, you are... Um, you are telling an untruth about human nature. And the untruth about human nature is this. In some sense, we are all capable of doing horrible, monstrous, evil things, right? That's how you get Germans, that's how you get tens of thousands of people serving in the machinery of the death camps and the Holocaust. People will do what they have to do or what what they're told to do. And that can be very evil. And on the other hand, almost nobody does these things. So why is it that no one does them? And what is it that makes the person who who does them do them is very is very individual and specific to him, though we can discern all kinds of trends in such people, right? We can discern these trends, fatherlessness, uh, you know uh, chaos, home chaos, uh, certain types of uh inclinations toward mental illness and then you know and then precursor signs torturing animals um you know getting uh, getting getting incredibly obsessed with conspiracy theories while you're the sort of person who tortures animals like it's not enough to be someone who's obsessed with conspiracy theories anyone can be obsessed with conspiracy theories but you then also have to be somebody who acts on stuff like that but since we're all capable and none of us does it, then these are exceptional cases. But I think we all know that some things are going wrong in the American body politic that we can't wave away. We, have, we do have societal trends. We have this vast increase in the number of suicides. We have this huge mental health crisis over the last 20 years that has accelerated in the last two years under COVID. We have family dissolution. We have a continuing problem with, you know, even though some of these trends are reversing themselves on the margins, uh, we have instability, a lot of children, young people living unstable, uh, disconnected lives. And that is the problem not guns and when i say it's not guns i wish it were guns i mean honestly if i could wave a wand look at this problem and say the problem is guns and it would be solved if there were no guns first of all you can't get rid of the guns but if you could if you could magically do that it doesn't correct for the problem it would correct for it might conceivably correct for the scale of these events or the scale of these horrors because it would be hard to kill people on mass. you know one person kill a lot of people en masse you know without a projectile weapon but nonetheless it wouldn't it wouldn't solve for the problem which is not the existence of a of a means it is a disease of the soul and that does seem to be a contagion
1: i i think there's a there's a connection between the personal and the social That anybody would acknowledge and the question is how does that relationship work and some of the differences that we see in these debates is about whether what the social does is to correct for some of that innate human evil or what the social does is by some mode of oppression create that human evil and a lot of that I mean that is a lot of the difference between the left and the right in a lot of our debates um, and especially in these kinds of debates. Because I very much agree with what you say, which is, it, it, you know, and there, 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 are, there are Christian and sort of classical ways of saying the same thing, that the line between good and evil is not a line between different people in society. It's a line that crosses through every human heart, as, as Solzhenitsyn said. It's present in all of us. And in that sense, the institutions of society are there to direct us, given that we begin as, as prone to sin. Um, uh, the Christians would say fallen. Um, And given that reality, we have all these institutions from the family to the school and the church and synagogue and and all of society's institutions all the way up to politics are there to correct for the fact that human beings are broken creatures and, and prone to evil ways. And when those institutions are working, they can, though never perfectly, redirect us toward toward better channels Uh, and when they're failing we're more likely to 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 give in to the kind of evil that in different ways is present in everyone there's a different way of thinking about this which is this would never happen if we didn't have broken institutions people as they are would not do this and so the fact that people do this should send us looking to what's wrong with our society Um, There's some truth to both of these, maybe a little, but I think there's much more truth to the first than the second. That the problem here is not that uh, there's something sick about our society that drives this to happen, but that there's a problem with human beings, and we should expect better of our institutions in correcting for it. And those do lead you in very different directions. The, The the idea that that we need corrective formative institutions leads us to ask, did he have a father? What was what was his school like? Uh, What kind of community is he living in? Uh, Whereas if you expect that this would never happen except in a broken society, then you begin to look for these kinds of national legislative solutions. Um, And I do think you you learn a lot about our society and how we react to these kinds of horrible tragedies that just force us to ask what in the world is going on? And our first response really tells us something about what we assume about human beings.
0: You know, you could also look at this and say, when someone, an individual is determined to do evil, Chris, Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI said, the thing that we're now afraid of, and that is our summer fear, is lone, lone actors. We have to do something about lone actors that is very close to an impossibility that is not something you actually want the director of the fbi to say because absent the adoption of techniques that we don't really know how to use yet from what we can tell all kinds of high-tech things we people were talking about um how do you (laughs) intercept a lone actor by definition the lone actor is acting alone therefore he doesn't have accomplices there's no one there's no one to give him up to the cops there's no he is he is the whole question then is if he has motive and he has opportunity and he has means so you know uh one of the things when you're reading about the the case in valde is um it's not like they didn't do everything they could think of to stop him at when he came at the school. There was some confrontation with law enforcement. He evaded it. There was some effort to, bar- to isolate him or barricade him somewhere in the school. He was in the school for an hour. We don't really, we don't really know what happened or what the timeline was and how, and how things happened. He was going to do evil. And the fact that they failed to stop him Maybe, you know, we can go through one of these processes where we're like, you see they're bad or you've got to fire the guard at Parkland who didn't stop stop the Parkland killer from doing what he did, even though they hired one. A person determined to commit acts of violence against strangers is in a unique position to be able to do so no matter what the circumstances are. Because that thing that might stop them that might stop them in a domestic situation, where you know they know somebody, and that's one of the reasons that they're enraged. And then something happens where the fact that they know them freezes them, or 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 causes second thought, or something like that. Obviously, somebody who wants to kill people they don't know is up to a different set of circumstances, and so. Okay, so yeah. from the practical. Reformers'
2: perspective, they would be very frustrated. I would suspect by uh, what you've all said, because these broken institutions that are failing to do what they should—these mediating institutions, the church, the school, the family—are uh, organic in nature. They are small. Um, they're not something that can be incepted into existence uh, by a by a state or any sort of entity like that. They they sort of exist on their own and and are self reinforcing. And when they break down, how do you reestablish them? So a certain type of, uh, so a progressives and a certain type of conservative would lean into the idea of uh, more collective institutions, national institutions that incept into their members a a, a a service mentality and create community around that and create a sense of purpose around that. Um, I'm not predisposed to that because the same, the same impulse that gets you to the Peace Corps also gets you the consomal. Um, these these there's two sides to that to that sword, but they do have a point about the the lack of institutions, and if that is
0: the problem, then we need to create new institutions. But th- those institutions, as you almost say, cannot be created like that. That is, I mean, this is Yuval, one of, Yuval's other great social science project, right? I mean, the subject of 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 your of your writing over the last couple of years has been this question of institutions are broken. What do we, how do we, how do we either reform them, fix them, re, re, re um, you know, recommit to them? Right now, the institutions that we have don't deserve to be, I mean, don't, don't, don't deserve to be reimposed on people. First the of all, not the community level ones, though. No, no, but almost every, there are. Throughout American history, and even in recent history, though right now I'm, I, I'm, I'm coming up blank on what I'm thinking about, but where there are naturally incepted movements for change, for social change, that deal with brokenness. I mean, the one that comes to mind most readily on top of my head is Alcoholics Anonymous, which is literally a decentralized, it's an organization that isn't an organization. It is, a, it is a fraternal, national fraternal gathering point that has no center, that, is, that, that comes together organically, place after place, community after community. And then if you're part of it and you need it and you're 5,000 miles from home... You go and you find yourself a meeting and you're just as welcome there as you are at the one in your neighborhood. Maybe more welcome. Maybe you have a story to tell that you've already told at your meeting at home and you would like to tell it somewhere else because it will give you peace and it will it will suppress your hunger for a drink that day. The story of Alcoholics Anonymous is the story of the creation of a massively important American institution that has done almost unimaginably good things for millions upon millions of people that arose out of nowhere because of the work of a couple of guys who had a good idea and didn't want anything from it. They weren't looking to monetize it or commercialize it or turn it into a political movement. It just was what it was. It was a way of stopping you know, of dealing with the fact that people who have a problem with alcohol have urges that haunt them every minute of the day. And how can you best that? And there, there are many others, many other such things, but they are organic. And the question is, how, how do we come to something more organic than Congress will fund violence prevention programs that are staffed by people who go to social work schools well, gee, thanks a lot. You guys have really done a bang up job over the last 50 years. You guys from social work schools at stilling some of these difficulties. And I really want to throw way more money at you so that you can continue to show your profound, you know, talents for getting absolutely nothing done. Abe, I'm sorry. Go
3: ahead. I'm glad you brought up Alcoholics Anonymous because I, I have a great deal of admiration for for Alcoholics Anonymous um, because, It is, it has been so successful. And because, um, yeah, there is no uh, ulterior motive. Um, What's interesting about it in the present day is it's an institution that works that has also come under attack now. Um, There is a movement among drinkers, among uh, medical professionals, among whomever, to try to discredit Alcoholics Anonymous um, books, articles, so on. So I think part of the story here is that even things that work are being attacked and people are sort of feel as if they're too wised up to, to, for them. Um, And, and I think this is is the sort of, so, so the other side of the coin here in terms of, what, what may or may not be a kind of societal sickness um, is that in some sense, some very real sense, Americans have things too good. Um, and as human beings, you need challenges and problems to overcome and to fix. And when you fix a lot of the actual fixables, um, you start looking for trouble elsewhere.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, Abe, but the, the criticisms of, of of Alcoholics Anonymous to which I'm uh, or I'm aware of at least is um, that it's just not secular enough. It's a very faith based organization.
3: Right. That's part of it. Part of it is that well, they scare you because uh, they say, you know, you you have this disease and it's not really a disease. And if you if you slip, then you then it's a then you you'll you know drink yourself into into the grave. And that's not the way it works. Um, there's there's a whole range of of arguments against them.
1: So I think there's a th- th- there's more of a case for a kind of uh, a kind of meliorism than we're probably giving credit for here. I mean, it is worth in response to problems like this, seeing what we can do. And there are some things we can do, even if they don't solve the underlying problems. So it's not crazy to think about whether whether our gun laws should be different. Um, I, you know, I, I think there is a case for, some kind of red flag law in Texas that they don't now have. And it might have helped a little bit. I I don't think it would have prevented this. I don't see how that would work. But this could be a moment when that could be useful. There may be other things that can be done. But we have to see that those are marginal and that they are not the right target for the kind of moral energy that is being directed at them now, where people get angry direct that anger at politicians who don't want to do exactly what is the latest thing on the on on the progressive gun to do list and claim that that those people are therefore responsible for what's going on here i mean you know beto o'rourke at that press conference yesterday is just a perfect example of what uh, of the wrong way to think about how to respond to a problem like this There is, you know, you don't simply want to say these are deep social problems. And so, in their own terms, there's nothing that can be done. But these are deep social problems. And in their own terms, we have to think long term about how to build, as as you say, John, institutions and how to build families and how to strengthen the things that are particularly weak. There's obviously something unsatisfying about responding to the brutal murder of 18 children by saying, well, we need to think about how to strengthen the American family. That's just not something that you know, as human beings, we can really do in response to something so evil. But we, we have to see that these moments are not the best way to think about how to solve problems. This is the result of a set of failures that we have to think about in, in terms of statesmanship and public policy in ways that take seriously their underlying causes, as well as the practical sorts of, uh, of, of fixable policy problems they involve. And obviously the day after a murder like this is not the day to do that. But when we think about what really can be done, there are a lot of people misdirecting a lot of energy in all kinds of misbegotten ways right now.
0: The thing that haunts us about these events is that when we find out about the killers afterward, we know that there were 10 instances in which his future path was probably pretty clear and in which there some form of interdiction could at least have um stayed the evil uh changed the day i don't i mean we don't, we don't even know uh but that there were enough red flags to indicate it and then the question is if there are all these red flags, uh, were people neglectful or uh, incompetent in dealing with them and therefore bear the people who were in proximity, not the general society, but the authority figures in their lives, were they negligent in a way that assigns them some negligence accusations? or is our more libertarian approach to individual rights, including by the way, the individual rights of people who until 40 years ago, meaning anybody under 18, were really not deemed to have very much in the way of individual rights in the United States. People forget this, but a lot of constitutional litigation in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was about expanding the civil rights of those who were, who had not yet attained their majority. School newspaper, free speech rights, um, various uh, other, other kinds of things. Um, and you know, you then maybe look back at this and say, well, you understand it. That makes perfect sense. But then you think, well, was there, was, was there a larger philosophical thing going on here where we were just cutting kids loose from the strictures that seem unjust and illegitimate when there some school principal says, you're not publishing that article that makes me look bad. But when you say, okay, that p- school paper should have rights and the principal shouldn't be allowed to suppress the article that makes them look bad, when you do that and you disempower the school principal... Does that mean that he's not the one who says, I'm calling in your parents and telling them that, you know, they need to send you to a mental institution? There's another aspect of that, and that's true, that we have <laughs> have sort of a libertarian view of the rights of people
2: who haven't attained their majority yet, but also a very collectivized view of parenting that has absolved parents of responsibility for their for their children. We have a conspiracy, an epidemic of child overactive child protective services and courts removing children from their homes for the period of 24 hours only to return them later to discover that they've made a horrendous mistake thousands of these happen every year for overactive uh communities that th- think there's uh you know a uh, neglectful parenting going on here to uh you know very active police forces and what have you so there's sort of this element that has made children much more responsible than they should be and parents less responsible than they should be and yes the parents of this uh shooter i do believe have behaved in a negligent fashion, because as she's been giving interviews, she talks about the ways in which she didn't see it. She had uneasy feelings sometimes, she says, and he could be aggressive and got really mad, but she didn't do anything about it. Not because she didn't have the tools.
0: The tools do do exist. She didn't avail herself of them. Right. So, I mean, I think basically, the last 60 years of American society have loosened institutions hold or loosened institutions' ability to mold people uh, in favor of this, as I say, sort of more libertarian individual uh, sense of autonomy over community. And um, I keep going back to the image of the swaddle I don't want to like infantilize, infantilize but you know the fact that that we keep talking about people who are under the age of twenty-one, Cruz, Lanza, this guy, the guy in Buffalo, you know, over and over and over again. And I'm trying to remember if I mentioned this the other day, and if I did, I'm I'm, I'm repeating myself. But when you're a parent, you have a newborn baby. Uh, baby is very spastic. If you, I'm sure most of you listening know what I'm talking about. Arms flail, legs flail. And, uh, you know, around about the time I had my first child in 2004, it had been to- gone totally out of fashion for people to swaddle babies. It was thought that it was constricting and nightmarish. And, you know, you were basically imprisoning the baby in a blanket. And why would you do that? And uh, a book came out called The Happiest Baby on the Block by a pediatrician in Texas named Harvey Carp. And Harvey Carp said, swaddle the baby." Here's how you do it. And it's not hard. It's not hard. It's not easy. If you remember, it's like the, the arms are, you have to do this, fold this over, tuck this under, but then you make it and you make the swaddle. And then you can rock the baby in the swaddle. And um, it's miraculous. And people swaddled for thousands of years. And then when permissive parenting came in in the United States in the fifties and sixties, and people were concerned that children were, you know, being too regimented or something like that, out went the swaddle, and babies were left swinging their arms around wildly, unable to comfort. Them. You know, infants, you know, two month old, three month, you know, couldn't didn't have control over their limbs. And could not rest and didn't know what to do and were, you know, unable to. And then you swaddled the baby and the baby calmed down and the baby was calm. The baby looked at you, the baby fell asleep. And it's like, again, not to infantilize these teenagers, but it's like they, there's nothing to swaddle them. They got, they got nothing when they have this, I don't know what to do with my, I'm, 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 flying out of control what can i do in Insti- i hate, hate the word as you've all knows, i hate the word institutions because it's it's self-discrediting like once you call something an institution it no longer has the power it was supposed to have because it's your church it's not an institution you know if you'd stop thinking of it as your church but rather the institution that helps me mold myself into an adult like it's already lost all of its mythical power or, you know, moral power or something like that. But but that's what they are. It's not just that they they are, comf- they, are they are a source of comfort. And they provide, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal always wants to use the word guardrails, but they provide a structure that allows you to say, I'm overwhelmed by life. And it can say, here, follow me along this path here's what we do in the morning we say prayers if you're if you're a Jew you say prayers three times a day we say thank you for waking me in the morning in the morning we say thank you for saving me during the day during the day we say thank you for the night at night three three prayers a day here's what you do when you feel like the world has gone mad just go back to the basics go to shul go to these things it will give you purpose it will give you meaning and it will swallow you And we, that is American society provides absolutely no comfort. I mean, that, that to me is the interesting thing about, about, you know, the last two years and everything. We were so terrified and panicked about COVID that we forgot that kids needed, you know, was it risky for people to do blah, blah, blah? Maybe. It turns out to have been maybe far riskier in terms of the mental health of the American teenager to have terrified them about the fact that they were all possibly going to kill each other with this virus. And what the long-term effects of that are, we have, we, we cannot even begin to count, but we have no sense of the fact that people need these things to provide them with guidance, to provide them with limits and to provide them with comfort. Cause that's what the guidance and limits aren't just there to say, okay, you know, you're stand on this line and don't get off this line don't do that. You have to stand on this spot and not move. It's like, stand on the spot, talk to the person ahead of you in the line, talk to the person behind you in the line, crack some jokes, have a common experience about while you're waiting in line. Try to have a good, you know, be part of something larger. And that will provide you with the comfort you need to get through this difficult moment. And there is just absolutely none of that. I mean, isn't that what, isn't that what the Buffalo shooter found in the Christchurch guy's horrible manifesto. He found some psychotic form of comfort. A sense of mission.
2: What? A sense of mission.
0: But also now I get it. Now I get it. This is why I feel like this. This is why I feel so terrible. This is this is if I can if I commit myself to these ideas, I feel less alone and I, I sort of understand what's happened to me. And maybe i can do something about it
1: i think it's it's i agree with that i i, I think that that it's worth seeing that even so and and even given these problems the, the 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 homicidal maniac is at the outer margin of our society it is still the case that this that that these are very very few people in a very big society and it's important to see that because i think that there are solutions to the kinds of problems you're describing that involve doing more of what we do well in America, rather than thinking that we do nothing well and we have to uh, reinvent ways for people to thrive and flourish in our society. There are a lot of ways for people to thrive and flourish in our society. And what's missing for, for the people at these extreme margins who we discover in retrospect, we're living these horrible lives of, of despair is access to those kinds of, uh, of modes of succeeding in life and connecting with people and being part of something. And we'd always have to remind ourselves we have a lot to build on here um, and they need access to it. It's not, again, I, I do not incline to see this as an indictment on our entire society. Um, I think that there are failures in the lives of some of these individuals And they're also prone to it. And a lot of things add up and it's very hard to know in retrospect, you know, what combination of things could have been done differently. I mean, we spoke before about some, there were warning signs, there are warning signs, but I think we can all think in our lives about people we've known who just kind of make us think for a moment, should I be doing something about this? And sometimes you really should, and sometimes you you really shouldn't. And it is very hard to know the difference. you know doing something about it can easily be horribly offensive and inappropriate uh it, it's not easy to know that this that what you're looking at could be some kind of truly deranged fringe individual and so i just find it hard to blame the people who you know afterward have these kind of characteristic interviews where they say well i i had no idea that he could do this he was just a guy that i saw on the way to work every day and you think how could you not know i I think it's probably not that hard
2: and dangerous, personally dangerous. There's a sort of a modern day Kitty Genovese video going around the internet today of a young lady who was on the New York city subway system who was assaulted. Somebody who filmed it. She was grabbed by the hair by a very mentally deranged individual and dragged around and she's in tears. She's asking for help and no one moved. They filmed it, but they didn't move. And why would you? Because you've been privy to stories about subway shootings now for the last two and a half weeks that you're in physical danger down there. And this woman was in physical danger. And there's maybe something a collective action condition could have could have improved her situation, but there was no collective action. And so she was just physically imperiled in full view of everybody else. And it's a moral atrocity. But it's that's a that's a failure of a lot of institutions, from from public institutions designed to preserve and protect uh, public safety, to individuals' uh, moral failures, what have you. I mean, the con- contributing factors are are too many to count, um, but that's indicative of the sort of thing that we saw in nineteen whatever sixty four, and uh, we're seeing it again now.
3: On the mass shooting question, I think there's also a very practical contributing explanation to why this is happening now there have always been people with minds similarly deranged to those who now shoot up public places but there have not always been this rash of of shootings one of the things that exists today that didn't exist then is there's sort of an available starter kit if you are so inclined Uh, You can go start reading about all the people who have done it before you, you can have you, you before you even get into the question of buying the weapons, you can start sort of fetishizing the weapons uh, from afar uh, online. Uh, If you are you you can seek out a manifesto to to sort of head you in that direction or even that may even hit you as a revelation, as John says. Um, this is all available and this is a, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a, I mean, I, I don't want to compare it to sort of, um, radical ideology, but it's, 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 it's almost like, a you can self-radicalize, uh, if, you know, sort of, you, you can down the path of violent mental health. And well, we, this did we, not exist before. I mean, we
0: saw that happen uh, in some of the most extreme cases after nine eleven, the self radicalization, all of which. That's what, yeah. Came
3: oh, about by the way, I, I John I'll Walker, add this with John
0: Walker Lind.
3: Um, we, yeah, we just want to say, without getting to the question of what actual effect violent video games have or not, but you can spend, you could then also spend your whole day playing shooter games,
0: right? But again, I mean, that's where you start getting into the weird, you know, because if 200 million people play shooter games and one of them is self-radicalized, then goes off and fights against the United States and Afghanistan, you can't blame a shooter game because. Uh, there many, w- many had, strands yeah, in here. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I, you bring up, uh, you know, you bring up an important point. I was thinking about what Noah said about the about this, um, the video of the woman on the subway, which is just tears your heart out. Uh, other complications, which I think also goes to what Yuval's question about intervening. So I was once on the New York City subway on a Sunday morning uh, at the Fulton Street stop, one of the most uh, the busiest stops in the system. But the train was largely empty. Now they're all empty, but it didn't used to be. I was on a four train going uptown. A woman comes on with her son, a black woman, very young. Son's maybe four or five, and he is misbehaving. And she looks exhausted and he is running around and she's like, sit down. And then she says, sit the F down. I'm sitting across from her. there's almost no one else in the car. And then she grabs him by the hair and pulls him down. And I said, do I need to go get a police officer? I just looked her in the face and I said, do I need to go get a police officer? And she said, what? And I said, do I need to go get a police officer? because?" I'm seeing something I shouldn't be seeing. And then she said, this is not your son. This is my son. And I said, I understand that. That doesn't mean that you can physically abuse him. Do I need to go get a police officer? And then she said, I'm sorry. And she looked down. And then he kind of like sat. she kind of burrowed into her. She put her arm around him. That, And then uh, we went on. I moved down or something like that. And then I had this moment. It was like, Oh, I did it. Yay me like, you know, I, I didn't sit there and I, I wasn't silent. And then I had this other horrifying thought, which is she's going to get off that train wherever she gets off the train. And she is going to beat the shit out of him because of what I did. I humiliated her. I faced her down. She's, 18 years old with a four-year-old son, some, you know, 45-year-old white guy is shaming her down. That kid isn't, she's not going to go after me. She's going to go after him. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I saved her. Maybe, you know, maybe I caught her at the moment that she needed to be caught. And I therefore did a heroic thing. But how, how can I know? I'm just a passerby. I, I didn't do it for the kid and I didn't do it for her. I did it for me because I didn't want to walk around going, should I have done something? Should I have not done something? This again is where these things are just fiendishly complicated. If you go and tell on a neighbor or something like that, who is having a bad day with a kid and then child services comes and something horrific happens and the child services person is crazy and then takes that kid into foster care because you reported hearing screaming and yelling and something was thrown, is that a good thing? Did you do the right thing? Did you do the right thing calling foster care? Like social organization is very, very complicated. And that's also the the problem with this failure of the institutions because there were other ways and means to handle these things before that did not involve, I'm going to go to the cops, I'm going to go to the state call the priest. You could ask the priest to go do something, go talk to somebody. You could, you know, send a couple of people over to the apartment to see if maybe somebody needed help making dinner because everybody knows everybody in the building. Everybody knows everybody in the in the in the in the apartment complex, whatever. And there's just so much less of that than there used to be. Um anyway, you could all you can all wonder at the moral question that I raised about my own conduct on the on the on the four train. Um, which which, you know, I, I will be haunted by for the rest of my life because I genuinely there's just, you know, you don't you don't know you don't know what the follow-up is. You just have your happy moment of seeming to have been a big man and done a big thing. And then second thoughts start suggesting that, you know, you may have made things worse. Which, of course, is always the problem with it. enacting change as a result of a horrifying disaster, right? Sort of legal changes or you know, hysterically this do something, do anything impulse that can lead to the imposition of new kinds of strictures that are exactly the wrong ones. And then you can't un- un- unbind them.
1: That's right. I mean, I think there's no way the, 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 the default situation is not nothing ever goes wrong. And so that means when things go wrong, that's not, uh, that's not proof of incompetence at some level, not exactly. Every, uh, uh, every bad social form and institution is an answer to some question, is a solution to some problem. And it's there for a reason. And so it's true that uh, this kind of thing might have been handled by a priest before, but you know we also know that priests have their own problems. And- so does everybody else. And so I, the hardest thing to accept is that breakdown is the norm. Breakdown is the human condition. And that means that we're building this very complicated society to do our best to minimize that kind of disastrous breakdown and to make possible successful human social life on a vast scale. And we do have successful human social life on a vast scale. But it's never perfect, it's not, it, it couldn't possibly be, and we have to find ways to respond to its failures in constructive ways to say this shouldn't happen, and yet also to see that the fact that it happens is not an indictment of our entire way of life, but is an argument for changing something in response, recognizing that the response may well create its own problems, in fact, almost certainly will.
0: Yeah, well, you know, trade-offs, this is the you know yeah. we are as you said we are broken you know or or in some faiths we're we're a fallen we are fallen people and our collective action contains within it our brokenness by by definition which is one of the reasons why you don't necessarily want that action to be too wildly ambitious because it may be in need of revision and correction because the brokenness may be may have a corrupting effect that means that your solution is worse than the disease, or at least does it or at least just complicates the disease or metastasizes the disease or something.
1: So yeah, with that, I mean, on it, that, it, yeah, it's a ahead. degree of self-restraint. It's very hard to achieve on, on, a, on a day after you witness something so horrible and evil, but, but I think that's right.
0: And on the other hand, um, because of the brokenness of our institutions of government uh it's also not like it might have been at other times when there would have been a mad rush for a for a for a quick and dirty solution um you know uh that clearly there isn't one and there isn't going to be one there's just going to be political fighting over it and fundraising over it and and exploitation of it but no real change i can't imagine and in in the end the change isn't going to come from there anyway, right? Any change that is meaningful isn't going to come from collective action at the state or federal level. It's something deeper and more complicated, and and if it's going to have a really serious long term effect, we'll have to spread slowly and organically, like AA or 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 any any of the great awakenings you know that 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 led Americans back to faith after after periods in which faith had increasingly become distant from their day-to-day lives um, and we haven't had a' had a really big one for a
3: hundred years, but we could be due. I mean who knows We'd have to crowd out all the self-help and all the you know vague spirituality out there right.
0: But all of yeah, that and the exists, uh, authoritarian right. integralism, please. And the authoritarian <laughs> integralism. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a that's a particularly fantastic solution, you know. Because <laughs> I, I for one, really look forward to being governed by the Pope. Um, that's really, you know, that's 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 where that's where my life has been heading inexorably, and I really. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're better off not knowing what I'm talking about. And if you do, I hope that amused you. And if it didn't amuse you, I'm surprised you're still listening. Anyway, you've all lived in. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Christine will be back tomorrow for Abe and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.